Om Sahana Om Sahana Bhavatu Sahana Ubunaktu Sahaviryam Karavavahai Tejasvi Naraditamastu Mahavidveshavahai Om Shanti 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 May Brahman protect us, may Brahman sustain us, may Brahman illumine our minds. May we not find fault with the teachings, the teacher, or with the world. And may what we study be a source of inspiration to us eternally. Om peace, peace, peace. Om Satyena. Om Satyena Labhyastapasa Yesa Atma Samyagyanena Brahmacharyena Nityam Antaha Sharirehi Jyotir Mayohi Shubraha Yam Pashanti Atayaha Kshina Doshaha Om Shanti 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 the indivisible self within is realized through continence, moderation, through knowledge and truth, through austerity, all constantly cultivated. When mental impurities dissolve, then the seer beholds it, radiant and ever pure, existing everywhere, even here in this very body. Om peace, peace, peace. May peace be unto us, may peace be unto all. Om Hari Om. So today is the 2nd of August, it's Janmashtami. That is, as I was saying in satsang the last couple of days, Janmashtami actually falls on the 19th, but as soon as August is ushered in, then we start thinking about Sri Krishna, whose powerful presence we feel, this image we see here, nicely mounted on the wall of our new ashram. This is our first class at our new ashram in Portland. In this particular location in Portland is about the third or fourth we've had. So it's your ashram and been created by your own desire or your own deep intensity for spiritual truth and realization, as our chant just indicated, that we engage in a definite or intense sadhana by which uh, mental impurities dissolve and the presence of avidya and of maya disappears from our mind leaving it in possession and clear view of, of the eternal nature within that is nothing ever comes or goes in Brahman it's just present and all we do is roll down the mind's various screens or projections uh, vikalpas and sankalpas 
or if you want to put it in yogic terms, quiet the vibrations of the mind, and then Brahman should stand forth of its own nature. Sri Krishna was the great exemplar of that, one of the major, or maybe the major, archetypical soul, which exists throughout time, throughout this projection of time, which beings can always turn to, always in possession of the highest truth. So we ought to think of the whole month of August as Janmashtami, and then the other 11 months of the year also continue to uh, take Sri Krishna's message and put it into practice, make our spiritual life a dynamic and living thing, which is also which, that which Vedanta asks us to do too. We often point out the 18 chapters of the Bhagavad Gita as being various yogas, there's even a yoga of dejection, which starts off the whole Gita, which is sort of symbolic. Uh, Arjuna Vishada Yoga, it's called. Arjuna's dejection at seeing this great task that's in front of him. And then Sri Krishna in the second chapter in Samkhya Yoga, enumerating all the various facets of knowledge, all the varieties, all the different ways or gates out of which one can eke out and walk along a pathway escaping such vibrations of the mind as de dejection and despondency and so forth. So the whole Gita is set up as a microcosm of this great cosmic picture in which Sri Krishna acted as the condenser of all the knowledge possible. So those 18 chapters, it's doubtful we'll get a chance to broach them through various classes that we have here, of which this weekend we only have two. But um, there's also the river retreat in August. We'll continue studying then. And we'll also take facets out of the Uddhava Gita. See, Sri Krishna sang two great songs in his life, although there were many other melodies also that she sung in between. But the two great compositions of his life were the Bhagavad Gita and Uddhava Gita these two great scriptures, one of which finds itself posited in the Srimad Bhagavatam and the other one in Mahabharata. So there were uh, great chapters or sets of chapters that were found there in existing scriptures and culled out, which really epitomized the, the main message of Sri Krishna. And that's what I hope to do. Many of you have studied the Bhagavad Gita with, with me or with SRV and its various uh, aspects through the years and quite often we've gone through it sloka by sloka chapter by chapter which in a sense we'll do this time but I've gone through and made a my own concentrated study of it again for for the umpteenth time because I've been through the Gita so much but I've done it this time with a with an eye to quintessentialize its message that is uh, in this great song there are many themes, many melodies, and a lot of development of those themes as, as the chapters move along. But there are certain slokas that seem to stand out which uh, epitomize the message of Sri Krishna. And many commentators of the past have had their opinions about what Sri Krishna was saying mainly, and maybe it's a little bit futile to try and slim it down to one, and that was sort of my conclusion when I began to draw out the different teachings that were there, the different major teachings. There are many minor teachings too, 
But some of the commentators have said, for instance, that bhakti yoga is the message, love for God. And others have said that karma yoga is what Sri Krishna is always talking about, how to do selfless action and escape the karma of this this world, which impedes the mind and brings about suffering. And others have said that knowledge is its main essence. So it, if we look at our own ideals and their opinion, that is, if we say, what 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 is the main message of the Gita according to Swami Vivekananda, well, he made a very bold statement and said uh, fearlessness, that every sloka in the Gita uh, speaks or, or, or cries out to us about the need for fearlessness, boldness, courage. And he says that in regard to the first chapter when Arjuna falls dejected on the battlefield uh, and Krishna sees this then in the second chapter he says don't give way to feebleness it doesn't befit you so any kind of failure failing perfection which is within us failing to see it failing to own up to it Swarupanyata bhava failing to, to reside in our true self or always running away from our true self that is our birthless, deathless self, ajativada, the, the path of non-origination. Uh, that would be the, to incur the greatest sin. So when Swami Vivekananda points that out, it really helps us destroy our doubts because many of us can read the Gita and we feel that we understand it when we read it, but when we put it down, then doubts come back about non-violence, about truth, about various things, and we find ourselves thinking, maybe according to the commentators that we've read or, or people who are even antagonistic to a scripture like the Bhagavad Gita or who criticize it, then doubts begin rise up in our mind. So it's important, I think, to hear Swami Vivekananda's testament that fearlessness is the main message of the Gita. It's a new thought, and Swami Vivekananda, of course, is all about contemporary thought. He took Vedanta and made it Neo-Vedanta. He took yoga and made it a synthesis of four yogas. There's just so much that he did, including interpreting the message of the Kali Avatar, Sri Ramakrishna, for this age for us, which the world still will have many decades and centuries to unwrap. But um, if we if we look at that message of fearlessness, then it does put to rest a lot of our own doubts. We see that Arjuna's dejection in the battlefield and Sri Krishna's exhortation to engage in the battle, symbolic of uh, our own need to essentially see the self and realize that self and then abide in it. See, that's very important. What we call non-dualism or non-origination is very uh, crucial to everything else we do. That is bhakti, jnana, karma, all these things which I've just mentioned. If we're to properly assess the yoga of knowledge in the Gita, and we're doing it from a standpoint, say, that I want to collect knowledge, I want to gather knowledge, or I want to call knowledge mine, if there's some sort of uh, other motive in studying the Gita, rather than non-dualism, just realizing that all knowledge exists within you. 
if you're seeking it, you see, or if you're trying to glean it and so forth, and that becomes your major preoccupation, then you miss you miss the point of the Bhagavad Gita, if the point is knowledge. If the point is bhakti and devotion, and you're failing to ascertain the connection between Paramatman and Jivatman, you see, because Sri Krishna represents the Paramatman, Arjuna represents the Jivatman. Paramatman is always that one indivisible self which is all always in awareness of itself. The Jivatman is beginning to get inclinations or inklings about that that oneness, but is still seeing things in terms of uh, I, I and my father are two. You see. Slowly coming to a more qualified non-dualistic position and finally to a, a completely non-dualistic position. So if you were to take bhakti uh, as the main <coughs> message of the Gita and therefore uh, think of it in terms of mere dualism then you would miss the point of the Bhagavad Gita if its message is bhakti. Now if its message is karma yoga, action, and uh, you miss the non-dual essence of that, that is that I do not do anything at all, that it's all Divine Mother that does. That's all the the Maya Shakti or Yoga Shakti who does all action. Or if you want to uh, put it in terms of relative truth, then you say that nature does all action, prana does all action. Both of those thoughts are echoed in the Bhagavad Gita. So if you were to understand those thoughts, or try to understand those thoughts without knowledge of your non-dual self, then you'd miss the point of the Bhagavad Gita if the point were karma yoga. So many commentators have said, Jnana Yoga is the point, Bhakti Yoga is the point, Karma Yoga is the point, but Swamiji has said fearlessness is the point. And that fearlessness means Sarupa Pratista, always remaining in knowledge of your true self as birthless and deathless, what Gaudapada called non-origination or Ajativada. If you start on that premise to study the Gita, that this knowledge is flowing forth from the archetypical soul, Sri Krishna, whose very essence I am, tattvamasi, that thou art, then you will understand the message of the Gita, whether you consider it to be karma, bhakti, or jnana, or raja yoga, because all four yogas are nicely uh, melded in the Bhagavad Gita. The first six chapters are karma yoga, the second six chapters are bhakti yoga, and the third six chapters are jnana yoga. So those three sets of six are very well known to the commentators. You can break the Bhagavad Gita up into three sections that way. First six, all talking, he's, he's, he's accenting the message of Karma Yoga. The second six set of chapters, he's accenting Bhakti Yoga. In the last six chapters, he's accenting Jnana Yoga. So it's really sort of futile to argue what the main message of the Gita is. But if we look at Swami Vivekananda and Krishna, Swamiji said, the, the main message of the Bhagavad Gita is when Arjuna falls on the battlefield between the two armies and says, I won't fight. And Sri Krishna has to say, feebleness does not become you. That's, that's the real turning point, because any time you give up that battle and, and let 
ignorance win or let maya overtake the picture and fail to see your true self then what 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 use is anything else karma bhakti jnana or meditation nothing else makes sense because you're doing it from either a, a dualistic or, or an ignorant state of mind you see if you look at Shyama Krishna and his opinion of what the Bhagavad Gita is about, he says it all means that when you start saying one word over and over again, what's that word? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you say Gita, Gita, Gita over and over and over again, the very word itself, then it turns into Tagi. Gita, 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 Gita. Tagi means renunciation. So Sri Ramakrishna's opinion is that renunciation is the main essence of the Bhagavad Gita, which is in perfect compliance with Swami Vivekananda's saying about fearlessness, because Swamiji and Sri Ramakrishna both used to recite that stotram, which ends, only renunciation is fearless. So with that as sort of a precursor into our understanding of the Bhagavad Gita, and with this beautiful mounted picture on the wall of <coughs> Sri Krishna and Arjuna and the chariot and the white horses and the karma manasa, that field of the mind which they're racing across, then we can enter into some sort of synopsis of the Bhagavad Gita via my own study, which I began by putting on the board here. The slokas of chapter one and chapter two which stand out. And Today and tomorrow I hope to get through a couple of chapters, maybe three or four chapters that way. When I learned the Gita, as I've often told you, I just sat in front of my teacher in cross-legged fashion, and then my teacher would recite the sloka and then make me recite it back. And, and if, I, if I didn't pronounce it right, then I would have to say it again. And then he would, after I had had the pronunciation right, then he would discourse on the meaning of the sloka and we go on to the next sloka. So that's sort of a traditional way of almost a call and response way, the same way you learn music and, uh, and by listening to the melody and then playing then playing it over and over again and then pretty soon you can master the melody yourself and embellish it as you wish. So uh, that art is, is a transmission from Guru Parampara. It's comes down from guru to disciple and that disciple passes it on to his student and so forth and so on. It's it's part of a precious lineage that happens. And it's all part of transmission. Loka Sangraha for the good of the world, the good of all the lokas you do that. So as you study the Gita, as you read it yourself, as you hear it from your teacher, as you share it with the Sangha, you are participating very definitely in that kind of a transmission and that kind of a perpetuation of lineage. Uh, you should be aware of that and engage in it with utsaha, plenty of enthusiasm. And in fact, there are five aids to steady your mind. If you're, if you're of a mind like Arjuna, who's just been cast on the battlefield and sees a great task in front of him, then you should call to remind five aids, utsaha, enthusiasm, sahasa, courage, which there again is your boldness or fearlessness, and patience or steadiness, of which Sri Krishna speaks of in many chapters, calls it stiti pragnasya, steady wisdom. So you should remain steady in your 
recognition of and remembrance of your true nature as being birthless and deathless. Because uh, ajativada, the path of non-origination, means nothing is ever born and nothing ever dies. There's no origin to anything. It's no beginning, no middle, and no end. Now, that might go against one of the slokas in the Bhagavad Gita, where Sri Krishna says, uh, beings are unoriginated in their beginning, they're originated in their middle, and they're not unoriginated again at their end. But that's explained nicely by Sri Krishna and by Gaudapada in his own karika on the Upanishad is that those teachings are given for those who still can't comprehend their non-dual nature, have still not arrived at the place where they've comprehended fully what non-origination really means. That's why when we studied non-origination at the Hawaii retreat recently, it was a great revelation. Anyone could study Gaudapada's karaka once in their life, would have a very good handle or a very good hand up on uh, what Sri Krishna is pointing at in his discourse in 18 chapters to Arjuna on the battlefield at Kurukshetra. The whole thing really comes down to uh, comprehending fearlessly, as we were saying, that non-dual nature. Then you'll have the essence of all the teachings well in hand. So everything rises off the breast of Brahman and, and falls and dissolves back into the breast of Brahman. There's no evolution, there's no time, there's no space, there's no beings, there's no objects, there's no beginnings, there's no ends, there's no birth, there's no death. There's just the non-dual Brahman, and it has its play of Shakti. That is, Atman has its own Maya. And as that rises and falls, there's no differentiation whatsoever in it. The taking on of shape or form like waves in an ocean is a momentary passing thing but it still has its intrinsic connection with the ocean there's never any sense of separation whatsoever even sea spray foam and various things all belong to the ocean so all these small little parts of existence which seem to have their separate appearances and movements actually have no movement whatsoever they all exist always and at all times in Brahman so understanding Ajativada is important, and Sri Krishna broaches it immediately in the second chapter after Arjuna's dejection in the first chapter. Very important to note that. So now we found out that fearlessness, renunciation, uh, based on knowing the non-dual self, is really at the crux of Sri Krishna's message. And now we find out how to go about recovering it if you've lost it. That is hear the non-dual truth from the lips of an illumined preceptor, according to Shankara, and be reinformed as to your true nature, and rise up and uh, smite thy foes, to put it in the language of the Gita. See, anything that comes up in, the, in, in uh, terms of your own weakness or your own ignorance, or anything that comes at you from the external world or from Maya, you're to stand and take it uh, immediately to task, you see, dissolve it. That's why we chanted Tad Viddi Pranipatena Pari Prasnyena Sevyaya through service, through questioning, and through uh, bowing down at the feet of the wise. Then you'll get that information that you so seek in this life, and you'll be well informed, and then you yourself can uh, uh, reclaim 
that territory that you've forgotten that was your own the main the uh, highest terrain of all uh, an non-dual Brahman which is your true nature I'm sure many of you or most of you know the background of the Bhagavad Gita so I won't spend a lot of time on that suffice to say that uh, it's taken out of the Mahabharata and it's sometimes called the fifth Veda it consists of chapters 25 through 42 of the Bhishma Parva of the Mahabharata. It's about 700 slokas long, has 18 chapters, as I was saying. And it's one of the Prasthana Triam, that is Upanishads, Brahma Sutras, and Bhagavad Gita. Those are the three great scriptures of uh, Indian history. Certain facts we need to know. Sri Krishna, of course, in this at this juncture, is Arjuna's friend and companion, also his sort of his philosopher. He always goes to him when he has questions, and so he becomes his guide more and more throughout Arjuna's life, and even gave away his sister to Arjuna in marriage. Krishna gave away his sister Subhadra to Arjuna in marriage, which uh, caused some problems, if you read the history, but had a great meaning to it all. Other f facts are that uh, as the Gita opens, of course, we have Sanjaya, who's received a boon of omniscience from Vedavyas that he can see anywhere. You see, he can see from a distance. So Sanjaya is telling King Dhritarashtra uh, about what's happening on the battlefield with Krishna and Arjuna. So you already have this first person, second person, third person hierarchy going on which gives a kind of interesting setting to the Gita, brings in many observers and many people. Dhritarashtra, of course, is the blind king whose evil sons have taken over the kingdom and uh, will not give it back to the Pandavas. The Pandavas have come out of exile. Put, they were put there by a gambling debt. So we have karma there being worked out. And uh, now they're coming out of exile and they're supposed to rightfully take back their kingdom after this period of exile because of losing the gambling debt. But the uh, Kaurava clan will not let the will not give up the kingdom. They want they've gotten used to being rulers. They want to keep the kingdom. This incites a great war because Pandavas rightfully have their kingdom to take back. The Kaurava clan are are not giving it back. So. There's one way to, to silence loose tongues, that is those loose tongues who are criticizing Krishna for uh, engaging Arjuna in a battle. If you were to read more than just the Bhagavad Gita, the whole history and the Mahabharata that leads up to the Gita, you'll find that Sri Krishna did everything possible to try and mediate the battle. He did more than then was humanly possible to try and console both sides and to uh, end this battle, but it wasn't possible, so he himself had to take a, a position, you see, and so it's interesting to see him as the witness of the battle from the seat of a chariot. He's just guiding uh, Arjuna's chariot. That's an interesting uh, philosophical ramification right there, that Krishna becomes somewhat of an observer, even in his participation. As far as his other participation goes, he's, of course, the king of Dwarka at that time, so he's got his own armies. And so both Arjuna and the Kaurava clan are wondering, 
who's going to get his support. See, so when it becomes clear that that the battle must go on, that it can't be stopped, and Krishna can't mediate and and end this battle, and that there's a great gathering of forces on both sides, then he finally accosts that problem of who he's going to give his support to. Both sides want his support. Up to this point, he's being uh, very much impartial. So he uh, he calls forth uh, a situation. He goes into a room and calls a meeting between Arjuna and Durodhana, the eldest son of the Kaurava clan. And he shuts the door and puts a bed there and then puts a chair at the bedstead. Uh, in other words, he's laying on the bed and there's a chair behind him. It's the only chair in the room. And then he lays down and feigns sleep. And Ar- Arjuna and, uh, and Durodhana are supposed to come you see and meet him there. So Arjuna enters r- first into the room and then he sees Krishna lying on the bed sleeping and he sees a chair. So, being humble and being uh, reverent of Sri Krishna, he just walks up to the bed, the foot of the bed, and stands there and waits for the Lord to awaken. He just stands there, doesn't take the chair. Durodhana then comes in, and in his pride and arrogance, the kind of person he is, he goes immediately and sits in the chair. Just sort of ignores his enemy, Arjuna, and just goes and sits in the chair. Then Krishna opens his eyes and comes out of his feigned sleep. And this f- first person his eyes fall on, since he's facing the door, and his and Durodhana is behind him, is Arjuna. And so he sits up and starts talking to Arjuna and pledges him his support in the battle. And then Arjuna sort of uncomfortably indicates there's another person in the room, of course, which Krishna knows, but now he turns and finds Durodhana sitting behind and starts speaking with him, and, and strangely enough, offers him his support in the battle too. So he's told them both that he'll give them his support in the battle. So, interesting the way the Lord set this up, you see. He comes out with this uh, exclamation. He says, I'll give you, one of you can have my armies, and the other can have me. And so who's going to make the first choice? since he saw Arjuna first. You see, Arjuna gets the first choice. So the Lord set it up very nicely so that Arjuna would would, would be put to the test. The whole thing is about Arjuna's test. Turodhana is not going to change his nature. Arjuna is on the cusp of, becoming, of leaving his animalistic nature behind and becoming divine. He's between uh, Virya and, and Daiva. You see, in the teachings there's Pasu, people who are animalistic nature still. They haven't gotten over their passions and all. And then there are heroic people, virya, who are or pillars of the society, who are righteous, who are just, who are dharmic. And then there's the divine, the sages, seers, saints, and so forth, who have gone beyond dharma and have actually arrived at a place of inaction and action, which Krishna teaches later. So Arjuna is placed on that cusp between uh, the heroic and the divine. And so, you see, it's been said that Yudhishthira really should have gotten the message of of Krishna, because Yudhishthira, the oldest of of the Pandava brothers, was the most righteous man alive at that time. 
but since he was the most righteous man alive, he didn't need the teachings. See, he didn't need to hear that teaching at that time as much as Arjuna needed it. So the whole thing's about Arjuna's testing. So, uh, so his first test was to come in and not take the chair, just to stand there waiting reverently, which showed his nature, which showed his reverent nature and his respect of, of the Lord. Um, whom now he's had a glimpse of, not only as his philosopher and his guide, who's also the king of Dwarka, so uh, Krishna holds a multifaceted level of esteem among people of the day. They don't know him as the cosmic personality yet. Most of them haven't seen him as Ishvara. But um, in the meantime, there's a lot of uh, varying, varying degrees of of uh, at least respect going on, even Dorodana respects Krishna and many of the Asuric natures, you see, they respect power and might and the avatar does have power and might. Uh, usually doesn't demonstrate it in such gross ways as the Asuric nature is bound to pick up on but nevertheless has very subtle ways of demonstrating his power. In the case of Krishna, of course, He's uh, come into his full power, and in the uh, Uddhava Gita, you see, he he's find him as the king of Dwarka. He has to abandon that city because of a curse placed upon it. So uh, Uddhava finds Krishna about ready to exit the body, but in Arjuna's case, earlier on, he's finding Krishna as his guide and philosopher, about to enter into the battle and lead him and drive his chariot. So, very interesting juxtapositions between these two Gitas, these two songs of the Lord, and interesting circumstances attending on both. So, to finish the little story, uh, Arjuna uh, was the first to have the Lord, Lord's eyes on him. So he came in. So, obviously, the Lord would give the first choice to Arjuna. Since I saw you first, you pick. Uh, do you want my armies or do you want me? You have the first choice. Now, this would probably act as a somewhat a slap in the face for Durodna. It's a double teaching because Durodna, in his pride, went and took the chair, you see. So now he sees his mistake, you know, in a clever sort of mind-calculating way. He's saying, oh, gee, I should, have been, I should have feigned respect, you see. I should have stood there at the bedstead like Arjuna did so that the Lord's eyes would have fallen on me first so that I could have received this boon, because Arjuna is going to pick the armies and I'm going to be left with Krishna. <laughs> so, But that doesn't happen. This might be all going through the mind of Durodna. We don't know. I'm, I'm sort of interpreting this, but uh, that's what I would think would be going through the Asuric mind of Durodna, that he's chastising himself for not uh, putting on a show of respect, at least, and for being so impetuous. Whereas Arjuna following his own nature, you see. He's a great warrior of great prowess, one of the best archers and so forth, but it doesn't make him lose his appreciation of true greatness. That's one facet of it. But the other facet is that Arjuna then has to make the choice. And Arjuna, much to Durodna's glee, chooses Sri Krishna. He says, well, do you want me or my army? He said, without hardly batting an eye, he says, I will take you, Krishna. So uh, then Durodna very happily accepts all the uh, armies of Sri Krishna on his side. So the two go away 
happy because they've got what they want. But Derodin is thinking in terms of power and might and numbers. The many, you see, that's that's the meaning of it. The the ignorant people always think in terms of the many, but the wise always think in terms of the one. And this one, in this case, is Sri Krishna. So non-dualism again is at the the warp and woof of everything that's being taught, everything that's being uh, exposed or presented in this great uh, song, Bhagavad Gita. Those are uh, a few of the facts and background here. Um, we have names like Bhima, who was the oldest brother of Arjuna. He was quite uh, heroic, but also leaning toward the animalistic side, so he wouldn't have been a good person to give the message of the Gita to one of, one of the other Pandava brothers. Then we have uh, Yudhishthira, of course, the eldest brother, Durodhana, whom we've mentioned, the son of the Kaurava clan. Bhishma is Arjuna's grandsire, and he's fighting on the opposite side of the army. So this is one of the great thorns in Arjuna's side when he comes between the two armies and Krishna stops the chariot there and Arjuna wants to oversee the battlefield. To this point, Arjuna hasn't given one thought about the difficulty of the battle because he's not at all a coward. He's a great hero. And a kshatriya, a warrior, delights in a righteous war. Uh, so uh, when he then he takes a look at the army and he sees among others uh, Bhishma there on the other side then he starts thinking my god I've got to kill my grandsire and also I have to kill Drona see because Drona's over there and he's Arjuna's teacher taught him everything in the arts of war and, and various angas or vedangas have been taught to Arjuna by Drona. So now he's seeing he has to kill people like this, and this is where his knees start to get weak. <laughs> he starts to lose his stamina. It starts there, right? And then it goes into the body, which is an interesting teaching too. When when the mind is unresolved, then the body is going to become absolutely tamasic. You see, it's going to lose all its energy. And so... Later on, Sri Krishna teaches Arjuna that. He says, many branching are the ways of the unwise, the infirm in mind. But only, there's only one way to those who are firm in mind. So always choosing the right way at any juncture in life based on non-dual progression, you see, towards the non-dual, from the non-dual, in the non-dual, is always the way of the wise. There's only one choice for them, and they always know it. But the infirm in mind have a whole plethora of ways and pathways to go, at any given moment, what to consider any given junction. At any given moment means Shatavadana. The tantric adept said one of the evolutes of Maya is that uh, thinking a hundred things at once instead of focusing on one thing. See, so uh, an average or normal person might come up to a juncture in life and say, "Which way am I going to go?" But to the infirm in mind, every moment is a multifaceted juncture, and they're they're trying to choose. Isn't that the nature of the dual mind? Manas wants to call up many, many things. And if the intellect isn't behind the mind in a one-pointed way, then there's hell to pay. Like uh, when Sri Krishna is on the battlefield and he's trying to guide the five horses. You see, and if he doesn't rein them in with his willpower, then each of them is going to take a different road. The five horses mean the five senses, eyes, ears, sense of smell, taste, and touch. To those who are infirm in mind, you see, 
those five can then subdivide or bifurcate many times over into many other choices. Shall I touch? Shall I smell? Shall I eat? Shall I see? What shall I hear? So forth. That's always going on in their mind constantly in rapid succession. So they become scattered. Kshipta, Patanjali calls it, uh, scattered in mind. It's an unhealthy state of mind. And we see it as a normal way of behavior nowadays. In our, in our kids who go to school, for instance, they come from households that are, where there are three TVs going on, parents are yelling at each other, they're yelling at the kids, the kids are yelling at each other. And this is the average way of thinking. See, this becomes the normal behavior, the normal scenario of their life. So then when they go on into school, then they begin to take their home environment with them and, and begin to act all that out in school, as we say. So this idea of the infirm in mind and the many branching pathways that are there is very much a part of the Bhagavad Gita and one of the things Krishna is going to be pointing out to Arjuna because he's not infirm in mind, he's heroic, virya by nature, but he's going. He's come across this huge juncture in which now he's uh, faced with, as I said, uh, having to fight against Drona and Bhishma and others and it's not going to be an easy task. So immediately his knees go weak, he settles down on the battlefield and says, I will not fight, I can't do this. So he loses his verb, he loses his courage, and Krishna then is there ready to guide him, which really kicks off the Bhagavad Gita in fine form. So these are some of the characters that are involved in very brief, because we don't want to take a long time, we only have two classes this weekend for this. Some facts uh, we've had already. We've talked about Trisatkam. Three sixes mean the first six Karma Yoga chapters, the second six Bhakti Yoga chapters, and the third six Jnana Yoga chapters are all about ready to be given, transmitted by Sri Krishna to Arjuna. So, uh, in the time remaining before our break, let's just launch in. These are the subtitles that I've given myself in the language of the Bhagavad Gita to the that it quintessentialized the first and second chapters, and I'll tell you what those are as we go along. First of all, we had Vishada or dejection. The first chapter, I've only chosen two of the forty seven slokas, which really stand out and give a definitive message. The first is sloka twenty five Tatra Pasyat Stitam Partaha. Pitrinatha Pitamahan, Acharyan Matulan Bhattrin, Putran Pautran Sahimstata, Svasuran Suridas Chaiva Senayor Ubayorapi. That sloka 25 is translated this way. Standing there, Arjuna then beheld both armies on both sides were peopled by paternal uncles, grandfathers, teachers, maternal uncles, cousins, sons, grandsons, comrades, fathers-in-law, and benefactors. So what to speak of uh, Arjuna himself, there are people here in the battlefield who have to even fight their own fathers or their own sons. That's the way this cake has been divided in this day and age, that there have been so many different loyalties and so many different connections. The interweave of Maya, you might say, inter interrelations of families and distant families, extended families, and blood ties, that the way that it's come out then, 
uh, is clearly divided into two halves. People have had to take up uh, their side of the army predicated on uh, those considerations, which they're bound to. Very interesting ramifications for us in our own sense of loyalty to the world or to guru, to sangha, to dharma, to family, to job, to occupation, to religion, to philosophy, to our true self. We have all these various, these are our grandsons and our maternal cousins and our maternal uncles and our various families. You see, these very things that occupy our mind are predicated which side we stand on. And it doesn't really boil down so easily into just good and evil. It's not that black and white. There are many gray areas, as you say, and many possible gray areas. Arjuna himself has encountered one right now just by seeing and being so attached to his own life and relativity and all the all the uh, concomitants of that life and relativity. Now he's finding how wedged in he is, you see. But he chooses the least desirable of all routes at this point. He falls down and gives up. Sovereignty over the world or uh, noble death on the battlefield. These are choices, for instance, Arjuna could take, you see. But to run away, to sink down in cowardice is not acceptable. And Sri Krishna is going to tell him why and guide him through this. So this sloka is of note because it sets up a whole situation in Arjuna's mind, why he's so dejected. And it also is symbolic of our own minds in the world and what we have to cope with and what we have to deal with. Which side are we going to take? The side of our true self, the side of Maya. Are we going to rise up and transcend uh, all these filial and family considerations, the mundane considerations of job, of work, of money? Are we going to put them subservient to our spiritual life and march victorious, or are we going to give in and let those things uh, have the victory, win the day, and, and, uh, and then accept the karmic ramifications that come afterwards? The second sloka in chapter one, which will be a breeze here, is this uh, set of slokas 25 and 36, which really outline nicely Arjuna's dejection. 36 is, we've done 25. Uh, what delight can we derive, Krishna, by doing away with these sons of Dhritarashtra? That's, of course, the blind king. Sin only will accrue to us by slaying these desperados. So Arjuna is, uh, as Krishna tells him later, echoing words of wisdom, but all for the wrong reason. He's, of course, pointing out the undesirability of violence and the desirability of ahimsa, remaining nonviolent. But up to a certain point, then, Krishna has to tell him a deeper meaning of ahimsa, which means that the self cannot be killed. And those who think they're killing and those who think they're being killed are really still operating in an ignorant mindset because they didn't hear that teaching and really believe it, that the self is indestructible. So Krishna has to launch into the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita in Sankha Yoga. He has to outline the uh, essence of a jativada. He even uses the word. So you can see why great beings like Gaudapada and Shankara were so influenced by Bhagavad Gita, by Sri Krishna's words, because Gaudapada's whole 
I hate to call it a theory, but his whole fashioning of his truth of non-origination was based upon Ajativada, which was mentioned by Sri Krishna in the Gita much earlier. So the birthless, deathless nature has not been understood by those beings yet who are killing or think they're being killed. As far as the action goes, it's led them there. That has karmic ramifications. And of course, everyone's going to make their choice. But as far as the eternal truth, there's no other choice. You see, there's, there's no other truth than that. Something cannot change its nature. See, if something's eternal, then it'll always be eternal. It can never become all of a sudden non-eternal. Or if something's true, it can never become false. And Sri Krishna says that also in the Gita, that that uh, unreality never exists, and the real never ceases to be. The truth about both of these has been understood by the seers. That is, they understand that the unreal, what people call unreal, or changing, or mutable, has always been unreal and is always mutable. It's the constant changing. And then they also understand that there's this unchanging verity, Brahman, Atman, Paramatman, and that will also never change its nature. It's not that through the march of time there's been some sort of transformation, Parinami. No way, no how. People have, what's been changing is their perception or their misperception. Bhranti Darshana, as Father of Yoga called it, they've lost sight of the truth, or whole family lines have lost sight of the truth, or whole nations have lost sight of the truth, or whole cosmic collections of souls have lost sight of that truth, and therefore have fabricated a sort of half-truth or a sort of superficial, mundane uh, representation of the truth. And therefore, then, whole societies have vibrated around that. Sort of like Rahu eating the moon, but bit by bit, you see, Sri Ramakrishna used to say that in the night, the moon rises in the sky every night. Each time it rises, it, you know, a piece miss, is missing. See, so they then they fabricated a monster in the sky that was named Rahu, who ate the moon every night, took one bite of it. <laughs> so that was the prevalent thinking of the day. You see, it was a myth. It was probably started out as something quite funny, but then people started to believe it, and. Uh, we can look at our own society. It's not that we're so advanced. We still hold many, many superstitions, some of them very detrimental to ourselves. And so when Sri Krishna says that, he means, he, he means avidya, avidya maya. See, the ignorance of people's mind coupled with the projection of maya, the dream power of the absolute. Those things never really exist. They appear. But they know that piece of information in conjunction with the fact that the real never ceases to be. That no matter how covered or sublated it appears to have gotten, it's still one unified whole, one homogeneous essence. And that never has changed. So the unreal never is, the real never ceases to be. They've understood both of those. In other words, the real has an appearance. It's called Maya. So that's always going to be there, you see. But those who are infirm in mind, as Krishna puts it, don't know that maya is the very power of Atman to make things seem to move, to make things seem to flow in time, to make things seem to have spatial imperatives. That's a power of maya that's very real in its, in its own sense. It's insentient, but it always exists. It's as eternal as Brahman is. It goes on and on and on. So they've understood that to be the changing real, 
Saguna Brahman, God with attributes, but they've they've understood that based on the fact that Nirguna Brahman is the absolute reality. There are so many people in differing stages of digestion of this truth that don't understand it yet. And when it comes clear uh, to you, to all of us, then we'll be living in that non-dual nature and we'll realize we always have been. We, we always do exist in that and in, in no other place whatsoever. Anything fabricated by the mind, by the sankalpas or vikalpas of the mind, it's power of imagination. Sri Krishna also gets into that uh, with Arjuna. As one of my teenage friends said yesterday, I'm way deep in it, is he? I'm way deep in my music, I'm way deep in my soccer, I'm way deep in this. So Krishna gets way deep into this idea about Ajativada and Maya and Sankalpa with Arjuna too, that the whole thing is a projection of the mind, the kalpas of the mind. We studied that with Yoga Vishishta last year too. Another thing that's interesting about this last sloka before we leave chapter 1 and take a break is that Arjuna calls Krishna Janardana, that one who leads a being from prosperity to liberation. It sort of brings up the ideals of uh, Abhudaya and Nishrayasa, the Vedic ideals in Hindu uh, culture, Vedic culture. It was right and good and normal for a person living a worldly life, that is a life in the world, to seek wealth. In fact, Krishna later elucidates the four types of seekers, those who are seeking God via wealth, those who are seeking God because they're suffering, those who are seeking God uh, for knowledge, and those who are seeking God because they love God. The last one is Krishna's favorite. So there is a seeker who uh, actually puts himself at a juncture between God and the world and and sort of distributes the wealth. We're not talking about a rich, worldly person who is selfish. We're talking about somebody who glorifies in being able to redistribute the flow of wealth that's going on. Like Mathur Baba in Sri Ramakrishna's life, for instance. Mathur Babu was son-in-law of Rani Rashmani. And uh, so he had uh, much, much wealth there to distribute and, and helped to run the business of the Kali Temple at that time. And so that's a, a indication. And Sri Ramakrishna said he had several others in his life who help, would help distribute the wealth that would uh, uh, facilitate the leela of the Lord. Well, this leela isn't just for enjoyment. According to Sri Ramakrishna, uh, realization of God is the purpose of existence, realizing your true nature in and amidst all of these various things of life. So there has to be beings who will uh, facilitate, help facilitate that. So the idea is that all this wealth is put at the beck and call or at the use of uh, a great being like that, so that, so that why, so that people can gain liberation. So Abhidaya, the material good of every everyone here and hereafter, is put at the uh, subservient and at the use of Nishreyasa liberation in this life. Shreyas, see, the highest, the highest uh, realization. So. Uh, Janardana is that being who can facilitate that. That's one of the meanings of Krishna's names. He's worshipped by beings who are seeking prosperity and desiring liberation or emancipation. 
Another interesting thing about the sloka, and then we'll take a break and do chapter 2 afterwards. I'm going to go faster through chapter 2, uh, although there's a lot to say there. But the last facet of this, sloka 36, is uh, that, uh, to me anyway, is that Arjuna says, how can we slay these desperados? Here's Arjuna admitting to himself and to Krishna that these are desperados, yet he's going to let them win the day, you see. So it's very much of a of a uh, contradiction. Uh, he should be up putting these rascals down, you see, putting them in their place, even if it takes killing them in battle, rather than let them and what they represent at Dharma win the day and change the world into a place of, of gambling and sin and other uh, klybium, as we're about to discuss here in Chapter 2. Uh, that is a kind of uh, complacency that weakens the fabric of society. So uh, that's another interesting facet of this sloka. And it also has individual ramifications that uh, we've probably seen the tendency of our own mind to uh, put on hold things that should be dealt with in the moment. See, the mind is always doing that. Oh, I'll deal with that later. And that becomes sort of a mantra, I'll deal with that later. And for some things, they never get dealt with because we have some sort of inadvertence or fear around dealing with them instead of calling them out in the moment and uh, with the sword of non-dual wisdom or with whatever it takes, dissolving them in the spot. Therefore, living in a karmaless state, a state where anything that comes up is immediately dispersed and so it doesn't hang out in the mind anymore and cause problems. You can't concentrate very well if you have these unresolved considerations in the back of the mind all the time. Even if you've succeeded in putting them out of your immediate memory, they're still floating back there. So Lex Hickson and I used to talk. I remember somebody asking him once, uh, do we need to renounce things? And he said, he said, the things you need to renounce are those inconsistencies in the mind, the, the things that cause the mind to brood. Uh, eat itself, eat away at itself, you see. If you can renounce those completely, get into the mind, ascertain what they are, where they are, bring them forward, define them, and then say, I renounce them and cut them out, then that's the best kind of renunciation because it leaves the mind peaceful. If the mind is peaceful, it can get into yoga, it can get into union with Brahman. Otherwise, it's not going to be possible, You even through meditation or through study or through devotion, it's not going to be possible for you to get into union with Brahman, into yoga, without peace of mind, without, without that calmness of mind or that self-settledness or that contentment constantly cultivated, as we just said in our chant this morning. That moderation and, and peace and knowledge and austerity all have to be constantly cultivated you can't give up the spiritual path after three or four or five years. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, thirty, thirty-three in my own case. You have to keep at it that long. And then these truths really begin to dawn on you. And uh, they become a part of your thinking process. Whereas if you look back thirty years earlier and look at your mind and what its thinking process was at that time, you'll see a lot of these lurking things tendencies to brood and to become dispersed. Think about many things and forget the one. See, 
So uh, that's an important facet brought out in this sloka. Those desperados that Arjuna is admitting the presence of, that Krishna wants him to go and, and destroy, outright destroy, because they don't really exist, do they? Krishna says very soon, all of the beings on this arm on this battlefield, it's not that they never existed, or that they will not they will cease to exist in the future. So, it's that their bodies and minds and so forth don't have any lasting existence. Their atman is the one thing that exists throughout. And by failing to see that, even while you're killing them, you see, if you're killing out of out of resentment or out of anger or out of viciousness or out of a selfish motive to gain or something, then uh, you're engaging in the battle with a mind that's tainted and the karma will accrue from that. But if you are detached in everything you do, I mean, if you want to take punishing a child as an example, it's not fun, it needs to be done. So uh, you engage in it with that kind of detachment. You see, any difficult task like that has to be done in an even-minded state for the highest outcome and the best outcome of both parties concerned. It's going to be the same in the case of this battle. That's an important consideration to think about too, and always in terms of that when these rivers of blood flow, and in these flows of blood there are elephants and chariots and, and, and armies and people and so forth all flowing into the mouth of the cosmic form. They appeared to emerge out of that cosmic form and they appeared to live separately and they appeared to dissolve back in but there was never any movement at all there can be no uh, movement where there's no space and there can be no karma where there's no time in which to do an action so if you th see through the cosmic imperatives of time and space and see them to be ultimately unreal then you begin to get a key towards the uh, immovability uh, of Brahman. So that's why Brahman's called the inactive actor or the uh, uh, motiveless agent or the unseen seer or the immovable mover. All these names uh, are brought about, these appellations are applied to the, to the absolute being to give us the idea of the immutability and indivisible and eternal nature of Brahman. That is what Sri Krishna will begin to discourse on to Arjuna in the second chapter, which we'll look into after our break. Thank you for your attention.